Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. In this session, filmmaker David Lowry uses a scene from his latest feature, The Old Man and the Gun, as a starting point to follow the evolution of an idea from first draft to final cut. He leads us on his own very specific filmmaking journey in order to explore the tangents and the detours that inspiration can take on its way to the big screen. Good afternoon. I, um, I decided to do this script-to-screen idea because I had gone back, you know, Old Man the Gun, this movie I just finished, uh, has just come out. Has anyone seen it yet? I know it screened here the other night, so a few people have seen it. It was a movie that I started work on five years ago, and over the course of those five years, I wrote so many drafts of the script just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with this movie. I knew I wanted to make a Robert Redford movie, which is what it is, but like, how do I also make it a movie that I cared about personally? And so I just went through all of these, you know, myriad drafts of the script, just endless rewrites, trying out so many different things. And so a couple of weeks ago, I went back and cracked open the very first, the very, very first draft that I had started with, just to see how it had changed over time. And that was really interesting to me. And right around that same period of time, I was like trying to figure out what I was going to come here and talk about. And I was like, well, what if I just you know, without planning it too much, just go on a journey from that first draft all the way to the finished product and see what happens. And so I've got some things prepared, but not a lot. I figured I would just go through this process and try to like reignite my own memories. I didn't, you know, I went back and looked at the first draft, but then I started pulling material from other drafts without really looking at it. And so today I just thought, I'm just going to go through things beat by beat and talk about them as much as I can. And this might end up being really boring. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. I invite anyone at any point to ask questions if you get bored <laughs> and, and, to, and to just keep this as an open forum. Like this is, I, you know, keep it loose. I decided to go with the very first scene in The Old Man, The Gun, because beginnings are just a lot of fun. Whenever I start a beginning, I think about this quote from David Lynch's Dune, which is a movie that is not well-loved by many, but which I appreciate quite a bit. And I just always love this quote. I think he put, this is the very first line in the movie, and I think he put it here because you can tell when you watch the movie, he's having a lot of trouble figuring out how to start it and get all this information out of the way. So he's like, I'm just going to lay that on the table right at the beginning. And I like that he uses the word delicate because he could have used difficult. You know, he's having, if you're having trouble with the beginning, but I find that beginnings are often very, very easy to start with. You can just sit down and start writing and you just think, what do I want to see on the big screen? And you just start writing. And I can write beginnings all day long. I can write, <laughs> you know, a, a pretty great beginning spontaneously, but it's not always the right one for the movie. Like, I can write a great beginning, but the beginning of the opening of a film really needs, I've found, to correspond with where the movie goes from there. And so when you get to the second act and then the third, things start to get a little bit more challenging. And often I'll go back to the beginning and in spite of having written what I thought might be a really kick-ass opening, I'm just like, okay, I got to throw that out and start over again. And that's why I think it's delicate, because the beginning of a film needs to tell the audience, explain to the audience, convince the audience that they're about to see something, explain to them what they're about to see, and convince them that it's you know, worth sitting through for the rest of the film. You, I mean, the, the short version is you really have to hook them. So with The Old Man and the Gun, it, um, I've got my PowerPoint on here and on here. I've got to remember to do both so that you guys see what I'm talking about. I've never also done a PowerPoint presentation before, and they're really fun. 
<laughs> I was like, this is really fun putting this thing together. So The Old Man and the Gun, for those who haven't seen it, is a true story about this gentleman named Forrest Tucker, who in the 1980s, when he was in his 60s, he would spend his entire life robbing banks from the time he was 13 to the time he you know, died in prison. And he would rob a bank, get caught, go to prison, break out, rob more banks, so on and so forth. His entire life, he spent his entire life just doing that. And so there's this New Yorker article called The Old Man and the Gun by a gentleman named David Gran. And he caught up with Forrest Tucker in prison towards the end of his life and interviewed him and wrote this art, wonderful article about his life story. And this image is from that New Yorker article. And when I saw that, I was like, well, that's what the movie should look like. And when you look at the poster of the movie, we, we uh, got it pretty close. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, didn't do the bandana around the face, but we, I just took that outfit entirely. Um, but so this character is, you know, a quintessential Robert Redford character. He is a, a, the type of character that Robert Redford was born to play. And one of the great details about his life story is that he broke out of San Quentin in a boat. When he was in his 50s or 60s, I can't remember exactly what age now, he um, and a couple other prisoners built a kayak of sorts in the prison workshop, and they broke out by just, you know, climbing through a hole in the fence of their boat and sailing out into the bay. And the prison guards all saw them and thought they were part, thought they were part of the Marin County Regatta. And... Um, they just sailed away and got out. And from that point forward, Forrest Tucker spent about two, two and a half years on the lamb, robbing banks and being very successful at it. And that was the longest period of his life that he was out, out of prison. And it was the period in his life where he decided that he was, you know, finally, he'd finally become a really good bank robber. And so that's where I decided on the first draft I started writing and April 1st, 2013, an auspicious day of beginning of this project, that um, that's where I decided that I would begin with him breaking out of San Quentin. So that's the first page of the very first draft, and it begins in San Quentin. And it kicks off with Johnny Cash singing about San Quentin, because I was like, okay, great, we're going to start with the movie with a really awesome Johnny Cash song that's about this prison. It's going to be a really high-energy opening. And as you can see, it's like, this is page two, because I think page one was uh, a page that said, this story is true. It's a true story or whatever. So page two is the beginning. And by page 14, they finally have broken out. They've taken their boat, run up onto a beach. The boat is, uh, it's a kayak that they built and they named it the Rub-A-Dub-Dub and they painted that on the side um, to make it look like it was an actual, you know, boat that someone would sail. And, um, and that was the first 15 pages of the movie. And that was the first 15 pages of the movie for a really long time. It was a pretty big sequence. It was a, a big sequence. It was an expensive sequence. And it really, I kept that, you know, in the movie for ages. And I've highlighted this line about uh, the rub-a-dub-dub bleeding blue paint, paint into the sand uh, because it's in the previous page down there somewhere. on the Oh, at the top. And I noticed that you know, this is the first draft in April of 2013. In March of 2017, I still had that same sentence there. And this was a draft that we were shooting. And there's the, there's the scene in the movie, sort of. That's the boat. It says rub-a-dub-dub in there. You can't really see it. And that's all that is left of that opening scene in the movie is this image right here. We cut out everything else. We didn't shoot anything else. Because at some point, which I'll get to, I realized that that was just not quite the right beginning for the film. And the scene itself stayed in the script for a long time and kept moving around. But 
at some point, which again we'll get to, uh, it just stopped being right for the opening. So something else in Forrest Tucker's story, this is a section from the article, is that he met a woman and fell in love and got married in those two years that he was out of prison. And so when I first read that article, I thought, okay, great. So we have a love story built in. This is perfect. You know, we're going to have this character who's, you know, later in life finding romance and being tempted to set aside his life of crime because he's met someone that he cares about for the first time in his entire life. And this is about the only description in the article of his wife. They describe her as an heiress, so she's wealthy, looking a bit like Marilyn Monroe. And I did some research and found that her name was Jewel. So I had a name, and that was about it. By the time we started working on this, she had passed away. Forrest Tucker had passed away even earlier. And so this was kind of all I really had to go on. I had this detail that she was married to a guy named Bob Callahan. That's who she thought Forrest Tucker was, and she claimed to have never known that he was actually robbing banks. (laughs) And I also love the detail that she was an heiress and that she's an heiress to a modest moving company fortune. She had money, and so when Forrest Tucker married her, there was no need for him to keep robbing banks because he married into wealth. And that, the fact that he continued to do what he did really said a lot about his character. And I thought that was also really interesting. And so I had to start, you know, writing this romance. And so in the first draft, they meet, Forrest meets Jewel on page 54 and 55 of the screenplay, which on a 110-page script is roughly the halfway point. And I've got this scene here where immediately prior to this, there was a bank robbery gone wrong, and Forrest Tucker's on the run, and he's, and he's in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, which is where the real Forrest Tucker was operating out of that, at that time, out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I live, so that appealed to me. And so he sneaks into the Kimball Art Museum to avoid the police, and the Kimball Art Museum is a museum in Fort Worth, and is a really fantastic museum designed by Nathaniel Cohn, and I just thought it would be great to set a scene there. And so he breaks, he, he escapes the cops, runs into this museum and stops and stands next to a woman and describes her here very much like she's described in the article as a little bit as older, but still with blonde hair and, you know, looking a little bit like Marilyn Monroe. And they flirt a little bit and they're looking at an Andrew Wyeth painting. And I had them looking at this Andrew Wyeth painting because A, I love Andrew Wyeth. He's an amazing painter. B, it's an old man with a gun. I was like being clever. And also, in my previous film, Ain't Them Body Saints, I had really used Andrew Wyeth a lot as a visual inspiration. This is his probably most famous painting, Christina's World. And we used that sort of as a, as a touchstone for the look of a lot of the imagery in that film. I don't actually have a copy of Ain't Them Body Saints anymore, <laughs> so I found this on the internet. And um, I, I, could have, I could have found a more a picture that looked a little bit more like Christina's world, but I just did not have one. Anyway, I like the idea of, in my films, you know, having callbacks to the other movies I've made. I always try to do that throughout all my movies. And so having the Andrew Wyatt thing there was just a little bit of a callback to my previous film, which at that point was my previous film, even though I wound up making quite a few more before I got around to the making The Old Man and the Gun. And there's the Kimball Art Museum. And like I said, the film, the true story was set in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I really wanted to, you know, shoot the movie there. And I wanted to find these landmarks that are very representative of the Metroplex that I live in that at the same time a lot of people don't often see. And so the Kimball Art Museum is one of those. Then I also just wanted to have the Dallas skyline in the movie, which is a very distinctive skyline that I think has really only ever been featured in one movie, which is RoboCop. 
um, which RoboCop is the quintessential Dallas movie, even though it's set in Detroit. It just looks the way Dallas looks. And I grew up being so proud of the fact that I lived in the city that RoboCop was shot in. <laughs> so when you see RoboCop, I mean, that's like all the chases take place like on this highway, like right here. And you see all these buildings in the background. And I was really wanted to have those in this film too. I wanted to have scenes on a highway that looked like RoboCop from a very early point. Um, and then... There's also, this isn't in Dallas, but this is a really famous bank that's on the interstate between Dallas and Austin. It's about an hour outside of Dallas, and you drive past it. It's just this amazing-looking bank, and it just felt like a really great scene to have a bank robbery at. So I just had it in the back of my mind, along, along with all these other, you know, geographical landmarks, I wanted to have a scene in there. But anyway, I'm digressing a little bit, which I will continue to do consistently over the course of this <laughs> chat. There was one other scene in this first draft in Jules' kitchen. And this is a scene where Forrest, I think in this early draft, he had not told her what he did yet. And she figured it out. She eventually figured it out naturally. That's where the drama would have to have gone. But I had this scene where they're looking at the newspaper and there's a newspaper story about the robberies that Forrest Tucker has been doing. And he just starts talking about it. And she says, well, how would you do it? How would I rob a bank? Yeah. And so he starts describing exactly how he would do it. And of course, this is on page 61 of the movie. So at this point, we know that he's a bank robber and he's just describing what we've already seen him do. And this came from the article as well. There's a scene where the real Forrest Tucker was talking to David Grand, the journalist in prison, and just gave him a beat-by-beat description of how he would rob a bank. And so I basically just took that you see at the bottom there, he's like, I've just given you a manual on how to rob a bank. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to have that scene in the movie, but I just took the journalist and replaced him with Jewel and let it be a somewhat romantic scene. You know, he sort of, you know, walks right up to her. He's like, you know, flirting with her, but also just, you know, having these dialogue where he's like talking about robbing the bank, but also talking to her, like, don't try anything funny. I like you. I like you a whole lot. Don't go breaking my heart now. He's just completely just flirting with this woman who is his romantic interest while also describing what he does. So that scene existed in the first draft, and I, I was interested to see that I had that in there even then, even though it was on page 62. So then I kept writing all summer, you know, I, and at some point I turned in a first draft and then got to work on a second draft, some notes, and started working on the second draft. And the second draft still began with the prison, uh, prison break. That did not change. But I did decide to move the scene with, at the Kimball Art Museum with Forrest and Jewel up because I felt it just happened too late. It happened just really late in the movie and it needed to happen earlier. And so it happened almost exactly the way we just looked at it. But um, then there was a second scene on page 52 where that museum scene used to be where they go out to dinner together and have a conversation. And he talks about that he sells insurance, which is a lie. And he asks her, she asks him how old he is. And then... At the end of it, he has this little line, you like horses. Horses? You got one on your dress. And she's got a little pin of a horse in her dress. And at some point, I don't remember why, I decided at that point that she liked horses. So that was like the introduction of that element into the script. And that's something that, for anyone who's seen the movie, has carried on all the way to the finished film. And I just was like, oh, there's the first instance of it. Also, in this... in this draft, in the museum, they exchanged... In the, fir- in the first draft, they did not actually tell each other the names. Here he does... And it's blue because it was a revision. And I had this little exchange where he tells her, her you know, gets her name. It's, her name is Jewel. And he says, it's just fitting, you know. And 
that was in there for a second on this draft in December, but then it disappeared for a while. And I, you know, from one draft to the next, things are always changing, and that one vanished. But it was important to keep that in, you know, in this presentation because it come again, it's another little element that comes back. So after that, here we are, December 2013, and in January of 2014. I've basically, you know, I think I got hired to write the script in February of 2013. So I've almost been on this project for a year. I've got two drafts done. They're really big. They're very close to the true story in spite of the fact that I basically have invented this jewel character. And so two things happen that keep me from working on the script for a little while. And one of them is that I got asked by a friend who was producing this show called Rectify on the Sundance channel to go direct an episode of that. And so I went and did that in February and March of 2014. And in that show, there's a scene where <laughs> these characters go to a museum and, and look at a painting. And I just was like, okay, this is practice for the old man, the gun. Um, I didn't write this, but I just thought it was funny. And I just was like, I'm going to shoot this exactly how I would shoot the scene in Old Man, the Gun. But I think also in doing that, I kind of maybe got it out of my system a little bit. Then after that uh, show, I remember I was working on the script while I was shooting that and trying to just keep the draft moving, trying to refine it. And then all of a sudden, um, this other screenplay that I'd been writing for Pete's Dragon became not just a screenplay I was writing, but a movie that was about to get made. So all of a sudden, I went off and made this movie. <laughs> and so from, from basically April of 2014 until the following year, the following summer, I didn't really work on The Old Man, The Gun at all. And I just sat there on my computer. What did happen in that time period was that I got to work with Robert Redford uh, in advance of The Old Man, The Gun, because when I told him that I was off to make Pete's Dragon, I mentioned that there was a part in it that I would love for him to consider playing. And we gave him the script. And at some point, shortly thereafter, he agreed to do it. And that was a real luxury because prior to that, in all of these drafts that I've been scrolling through, I didn't really have a sense of Robert Redford's voice in it. And I was writing a character that I was kind of inventing. And I was looking forward to seeing him play it, but I wasn't writing it for him necessarily. And when we made Pete's Dragon, I really had the opportunity to learn how he acts, like how he is able to and how he handles a scene and how he works his craft. And there's nothing better when you're writing a script than being able to write it for somebody else because you can, you know, ultimately you're writing a part that you're inventing, but that part is going to be played by somebody. It's going to be interpreted by somebody and it's going to become something else more than what you've had on the page. And if you can write it for them specifically and play to their strengths and put some challenges in there for them to be sure, but also just lean into what they're good at, it makes the process of making the film that much better. You're already, you know, fixing a lot of the problems that you might run into if you otherwise were just, you know, approaching something from scratch on set. And so we got to work together for roughly a month down here in New Zealand. And after that month, I just felt like I, need to, I had to start the script completely over again because I all of a sudden understood Robert Redford in a way that I hadn't before. So when I finished Pete's Dragon, which was we finished in May of 2015 and went back to LA, at some point that summer, I started work on the script again. And the next draft I turned in was in August of that year. And I think in that draft... I still had the prison being at the beginning. That was still the, the opening scene. But I completely changed the introduction with Jewel. I got rid of that museum scene. I had 
I had no need for it anymore. And I, what, I don't remember how this happened, but I just really felt like this version of Jewel that I was writing that was closer to what was in the article, this Marilyn Monroe, you know, aging Marilyn Monroe character. I just didn't know how to write her. I didn't know who, to, who was going to play that part. And I was writing this, rewriting the script for Redford so thoroughly and making it feel like it was really going to be you know, a, a character that he could sink his teeth into in a very specific way. I wanted Jewel to be the same thing. And at that point, I was flailing in the dark just trying to create this character. So I just started to think of actresses who I would want to cast in the part. And I thought of Sissy Spacek, who I have always admired, always loved, and felt like I hadn't seen her in quite a long time. She'd been in some television, she'd done a few movies here and there, but it still felt like it had been quite a while since I'd seen her in a really great part. So I decided to rewrite the part entirely for her. And for some reason, I decided to set her introduction on the side of the road. Once again, Forrest is fleeing a bank robbery, but instead of like running into a museum, he passes this woman on the side of the road whose car is broken down. And I vaguely remember that when I wrote Ain't the Body Saints, I had a scene where Ben Foster meets Rooney Marr in the same way because it was set in the late 70s when there was the gas crisis. And I liked the idea of her having run out of gas on the side of the road and Ben Foster pulling over to help her. So that scene never made it to the film, but I sort of recycled it, the idea here. And so Forrest is running away from, you know, this bank robbery and he's got his cohorts in the car with him, but nonetheless, he still pulls over to help this woman on the side of the road. And we describe her as, you know, a late blooming flower child, She's got some money, but that doesn't change the fact that she's still just wearing a blouse and jeans. And there's this detail about a billion bangles on her right wrist. And that was based on um, our production manager on Pete's Dragon, this uh, wonderful production manager named Margaret Hilliard, who's from here. She's not here, is she? (laughs) Um, But she's from Rotorua. And she always had a thousand bracelets on. And I just loved that. Everywhere you go, you could hear her coming because they'd be clacking. And I just loved that. I thought it was just beautiful. And so I took that and stole it. I needed to let her know that I stole that from her. And so I wrote the scene and, and this was on page 31. So again, we're introducing her fairly early in the movie. And from there, what happens next? They go to a mechanic shop, drop her car off because it's broken. There's some dialogue about, you know, introducing him with his name, Bob Callahan, and she notices he's wearing hearing aids. All these little details are starting to emerge from this scene. And then they go to this diner, and there's that dialogue about horses again, although this time it's earrings and not a pin on her shirt. And there's this diner scene that ends on, you know, starts on page 15 and ends at the top of page 16. It's like very, very short. There's nothing there. And the thing about that that I thought about was like, okay, I got these characters to this diner and I love diner scenes. <laughs> like, I, I think like a lot of the best scenes in movies, in a lot of my favorite movies are in diners. Like Pulp Fiction is obviously one. Um, Cigarettes and Coffee or Sydney, the Paul Thomas Anderson films, that's another. Buffalo 66 is one of my all-time favorite movies. Great Denny's scene. Um, and then of course there's Heat, which corresponds to The Old Man and Gun a little bit because it's a bank robbing film. It's probably the greatest bank robbery movie ever made, in my opinion. And I kept, while writing The Old Man and the Gun, feeling the shadow of this movie over me because it's just a masterpiece. I saw it when I was 14, I think, when it opened, 13 or 14. And I remember writing, a, you know, immediately writing a ripoff of it <laughs> at that age, like a bank robbery movie at that age, because I just thought it was so impressive. And I, that version I wrote when I was 13 and 14 was terrible. And in the time since, 
especially now talking about the old man and the gun, I realized I'm not really suited for bank robbery films. They're not my, my cup of tea. I've done two movies involving bank robbers at this point, but I don't really, I like the archetype of the outlaw, but I'm not really good at getting into the nitty gritty of it the way Michael Mann is. And Michael Mann is a master of that. He's really, really good. And so I spent a lot of time in the early drafts of the script trying to make my version of a Michael Mann movie before eventually realizing that that's not what I should be doing at all. (laughs) It just wasn't me. It wasn't me. And somehow getting these characters to a diner, in spite of the fact that I'm showing this clip, the scene from Heat there, that really felt like the right place for them to go because I could just have them sit down and start talking. And even in that early draft, they're just talking for a page or less than a page. I felt like I was onto something there that made the thing more personal. Now, somewhere in there, I also saw, I went back and saw a different Michael Mann movie. Oh, do you know what interesting detail about this is that they're not at a diner. They're in a really fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. I found that out later in life and was really disappointed. I thought they were like at some greasy spoon, but they're at a really ritzy restaurant that just looked right and it looks like a diner in the movie. Um, Michael Mann made a film early before that called Thief. Has anyone seen this? Few people. And when I watched this movie, this was like a real key for me. This was, again, I'm not Michael Mann. I'm not trying to be Michael Mann, but watching this movie sort of unlocked what I wanted to do with The Old Man and the Gun. And so I've got a clip from this here does anyone feel like watching it? It's kind of, it's a little long. It's like 10 minutes. Is that okay? Okay. So that's like a pretty awesome scene. I hope to someday write and direct a scene that's as good as that. But what I got out of this scene when I watched it, you know, I watched this movie when it was released by the Criterion Collection in the spring of 2016. And I just loved this scene because it was so long. It just kept going. It just like, you just, and it never, you know, I could have sat in that, diner with those characters and just kept watching them because they were two great actors digging into really great material. And what I realized was I've got Robert Redford. I'm hoping to get Sissy Spacek. I'm spending so much time trying to tell this true story and cram all of these events into this screenplay that I'm writing that I'm forgetting about the fact that I've got these actors that I also need to lean into. And these, these especially with Robert Redford, you're like, Rather than try to like shoehorn him into a true story, I needed to lean into the fact that he's Robert Redford and that half the reason or the most, the biggest reason I wanted to make this movie was to get to watch him act on screen. And so I had this little scene in this diner that we had just looked at a second ago and it was less than a page. And I was like, wait a second, what if I just did what Thief did and just let these characters talk for as long, see if I could sustain the scene for as long as I possibly could and let that be a huge chunk of the movie. If I, could get the, if I could get that scene up to like half of the movie, that would have been fine with me. I just want to see how long I could keep it going. And so I wrote in the fourth draft in uh, January of 2016 in this restaurant. We have one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight. And a lot of this stuff is little bits that we've seen before. This is like, if we go back, you know, you, you're, in all the other drafts, we've got information about her husband who's died. We've got the little bit about horses somewhere in there. Um, There it is right up there. Um, We have all this stuff about getting older and life and moving on. And those are, are, that's some dialogue that eventually fell out and became a different scene. But so much of like all these little bits and pieces that we've seen in the various drafts are now coming into play here, including the fact that he does that whole bit about talking about how he would rob a bank. And rather than doing it facetiously, he's actually just telling her exactly what he does, which was another thing I loved about Thief, was that in that scene in the car at the beginning, 
before the, the diner. He just like lays it out. He's like, here's what I do. He gets it out of the way right up front and center. So you don't have to worry about that later in the plot. And that was really exciting to me. The idea of like, rather than having it be this revelation for the characters later on that she discovers what he really does, he just puts it on the table right there at the beginning. Now, this wasn't quite at the beginning if I'm looking at this draft. This is still on page 52. So for some reason, I went right, right back to having this be in the middle of the movie rather than in, at the beginning. But um, within a few months or seven months, um, that changed. And for a brief period, I think between that, those pages we just saw, a couple things happened. One was I sent that draft to Sissy Spacek and she said yes. So all of a sudden... I had both characters and I knew that, you know, I could write specifically for her at that point because we were talking about it. She was giving me input under the script. I finished Pete's Dragon and then made a ghost story. And somewhere in there, I kept writing on this script. And in the process of making a ghost story, I realized not only do I like scenes that go on for a long time, like that diner scene, I like very few of them. So I just started pulling scenes out of the script and making The Old Man the Gun, which had at one point swelled up to 150 pages of facts and inventions and all sorts of things I just wanted to cram into it. I just started stripping scenes out. And one of the last things I stripped out was at one point, I don't know where in the summer this came, I had this scene in a different cafe, in a different diner, where Forrest Tucker's sitting there talking to a waitress. And he kind of does the same thing. He tells her that um, she, he's going to go uh, rob a bank. And he's like, see that little bank across the way there? Yeah. In three minutes, I'm going to walk across the street and rob it. And she just thinks he's joking. And then he walks across the street. And in one shot, we would see him leave the cafe, walk into the bank, disappear for a little while, then come back out again and wink at her and head off. And somewhere right around the time that I wrote this scene, I saw that movie Hell or High Water. Has anyone seen that? which had that exact scene in it. <laughs> and so at that point, I just, for some reason I'd written this, I threw it away. And by September 6th, had this movie starting on the highway with Forrest Tucker now on his own, just seeing Jewel. It actually starts with her. And I love the idea of having a movie called The Old Man, The Gun, starting with a woman. It was a, just a nice, refreshing change of pace after having written so many drafts to start with the literal old man. And that's where it began. And that's what we shot. So here is what the beginning of the movie looks like. I got my Dallas skyline in there, down there at the bottom, even though this was shot in Kentucky. Uh, this was shot in Cincinnati, right in the border of Kentucky. And so the Dallas skyline is a visual effect. And this was exactly what I wanted the movie to look like. If you look at, you know, the... Uh, description of the scene. It's like pretty much exact. It's like a highway, high noon, the sun's beating down from a, up overhead. I think we changed Jewel's car to a truck, but nonetheless, like, uh, you know, her outfit is exactly the same. You can't see it here, but she has a million bracelets on her wrist. And it was a really nice, you know, when we got to round to finally shooting it, it just felt like, all right, this is the beginning of the movie and it's working out exactly as we planned. And then they go to the diner, get my big diner scene. And we shot it you know, one of the things I loved about Thief was how simple the coverage was in that scene and how long they linger on some of those shots, just letting James Caan and Tuesday Well just hold these shots, especially James Caan, like just talking for a while. And I really wanted to kind of do the same thing here, like see how long I could let, you know, these actors just hold the frame. But I also knew that it was a pretty hefty scene and I wanted to make sure they could, you know, get through it. So we broke it up into chapters. So this long scene, which was eight or nine pages long, we broke it up into different segments. and Each segment had its own coverage. And so I'm just going to jump through those really quickly right here. The first two shots that begin the scene, then we continue with a little wider, getting further and further away from them. 
Then we go to a wide shot. And this was actually the last shot we did. And by the time we shot this one, they were able to, they knew the scene so well because we'd been shooting it for two days that they just did the entire scene like a play. Then we start getting closer to them again as he starts talking about what he does for a living. Then we have this special shot where she gives her his phone number, her phone number, and he gives her a note that we don't see what it says because I love having movies where you don't see what notes what the note says. Oh, speaking of which, uh, also they're eating pie, which of course I had to have pie in this movie. We start getting closer and then the, have this one special shot where Sissy looks up and sees the lady at the register. And then we have two opposing dolly shots that again kind of reset the stage and bring us back into close-ups. Then Robert Redford smiles because he's Robert Redford and we cut to the title. I have this scene to show we're running a little low on time, but should I, I'll sh- yeah, no one's seen it. So here's the, here's the you've, you've now listened to me talk about it. So here's finally this, you know, the, the, the realization of that opening scene that took five years to come to, or I guess it was four years by the time we shot it. And the only thing I'll note here is I didn't have a copy of the final movie on my computer. So this is from a slightly rougher cut. So don't judge the music. There's too much music in it. A little bunch of sound mix isn't there yet. Whatever. I'm just going to play it. So... So the people who have seen the movie know that that's not actually the beginning of the movie anymore. <laughs> so we, cut, we shot it, we, we edited it, we had the movie, you know, in a rough cut form, and I always leave room to, you know, go shoot more stuff if we need it. You know, that's always part of my budget, it's part of my planning, we always know that's a possibility. And for some reason, when we watched the entire movie, this, you know, again, this kind of lays out the movie for you, it kind of establishes the tone, it establishes the characters, establishes the feel of the entire picture but there was something missing. And in all of those other drafts that we've gone through uh, tediously this afternoon, <laughs> uh, for, you know, it always had this element that he was running away from a bank robbery. And even though I'd gotten rid of that, you know, it, that I kind of still liked the idea of it. And I, I, you know, had told the actors, like, definitely, like, Bob, you're leaving a bank robbery when you see Jewel. And so we went and shot a different opening to go right before that, which I also have. And this one's much shorter. So this is how the movie now begins. So the last thing I'll say about that is because we shot that, you know, several months after we finished production and we originally didn't have the idea of him being in pursuit quite so extensively, all those cop cars that just drove by were all CG. So well, that was the last thing we did in the movie, finished those cop cars and then we finally had an opening scene. And that is how we, that's how I kind of came to this beginning of this movie. Um, I've talked way too long and I was supposed to have like time for question and answers, which I still do, but I'll try to talk really fast if anyone does have any questions. Um, but if not, thanks for putting up with this journey. I was, it was very interesting for me and also surprising. So hopefully there was some, something interesting in there. Yeah, right there. I seem to recall that you were originally hired on Peeps to write and became a director later. Was it similar with this where you were hired to write this, just write it, and then become a director? Or were you always on as a director? That, this one I was always on as a director. And the weird thing was I went to meet, to pitch Disney on Pete's Dragon like the morning of like February 5th of 2013. And then at noon that day, I went to meet Robert Redford about this. So it was like that day kind of like, I'm just now finishing up the five years that that day set in motion. But, but yeah, Pete's Dragon wasn't meant to be something I directed initially. It was just to write. And then I luckily enough had the opportunity to, to then direct it. Over here. I start fresh. 
but then I copy and paste a lot from other drafts. That was one of the things that really surprised me looking through all these old files was seeing how much from those early drafts, even the very first one, made it to the finished film. Because in my memory of it, I wrote 300 drafts of The Old Man and the Gun, and every one felt completely different. I wrote so many, I just started over from scratch so many times. And certainly there are elements of the movie that completely went out the window. This stuff apparently was all kind of there from the beginning to a certain extent, but there's so much other stuff that, you know, really went through so many different variations. And I am horrible when it comes to starting over from scratch. I just do it constantly. I'm always like, well, finished one draft. This one sucks. Time to start over again. And I, I do that constantly on everything I write. And I'm trying to get better about it because it really wastes a lot of time, especially now looking at this and seeing how much I actually keep from the very first draft. So that's, that's why it was surprising to me to go back and, and go on this journey, just to see how much I kept from draft one, even though I thought that I had thrown everything away. Right here? I, sometimes, like, I, I'll, try, I'll try to take a couple days off. Or in the, case of, in the case of this, I went off and made a couple movies. So like, I'd go off and make Pete's Dragon and not really work on it. Like, there was that period where I didn't work on it for a year. But usually it's pretty quick. And there, there were a couple drafts of this where I would finish a draft because I told the producers, like, I'll get you a draft on Friday. And I'd send it to him and say, here's the draft. Don't bother reading it unless you really want to because I just started a new one. And, <laughs> and I drove them crazy because I consistently did that. And I really am trying to get better about that because, again, like this has been really educational for me because I realized a lot of times like I'm onto something on the first draft that is worth hanging on to. Right here. I get a lot of feedback. Um, I have, like, you know, my producers who I always show my scripts to and get feedback from them. And then I have, every now and then I have, I shall share it with friends. I'm really bad when people send me scripts to ask for feedback. It takes me forever. So I feel really bad giving my scripts to people who aren't involved with my movies asking for notes. But I do, I do that as well. I get notes from my wife. Uh, she is always very honest with me, which is great. And she knows me. She can tell when I'm writing something that doesn't feel like it should be my movie yet. And... But yeah, I get a lot of notes from producers. And over the course of this movie, I mean, we had a lot of producers on this movie because we had Robert Redford and his team, and we had Condé Nast, who published the original article. They have a production company. So there was like a lot of people. And then my producers who would read every single draft and give me feedback on it. And I, I'm, with this one, I was the only person I was really trying to please was, was Bob. I really wanted to make sure he was happy with it. Everyone else, I would take their notes, and if they were useful, I would use them. And if not, I would be like, thank you, but um, I know what I'm doing, kind of. But I definitely always took Bob's notes because I wanted, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take them to the letter, but I would try to capture the spirit of them because I wanted to make sure this was a movie that he was happy with because it was, you know, this was meant to be, it wasn't meant to be his final movie at that point, but he definitely wanted this to be the spiritual follow-up to some of his greatest hits, and I wanted to honor that. Way back here. I I keep going even when I've reached the end. So like on set every night, I would drive everyone crazy because I'd be like, "All right, new revisions coming at midnight." Um, I never stop writing, and usually, you know, at some point the script will feel good enough to start pre-production on. And even then, I still am writing through pre-production. We get to set. I'm writing while we're shooting. I'm writing on set, giving new sides to people. I just never stop. Then we get to post-production. And because, like I said, I always have that window of, like, you know, of reshoots that we, I always plan for. It's, like, a really great safety net that I highly recommend. But while we're editing, I'll be writing new scenes, thinking, like, okay, I'm going to write this scene. I'm going to storyboard it, put it into the edit, and see how it plays. 
Um, so I never stop. And I, I think like had I taken that first draft that I wrote on April Fool's Day of 2013 and we shot it, it would probably have been a pretty good movie. And I am becoming more enamored with the idea of taking first drafts and just saying, like, okay, I know my process. It's going to keep changing no matter what, but let's just start making the movie because the script is never going to be perfect. It's always going to be evolving. It's always going to be alive. It's a living organism. And I know that I'm able to like keep working on it on the fly. And that's just part of my process. And so now with the project I'm working on now, I told everybody, I was like, here's the first draft. It's going to be very different by the time we shoot it, but this is what we're going to start preparing. And the same with the ghost story. That was like, you know, I wrote that, we started prepping it and we shot it and we didn't, it didn't go through any revisions, even though I was writing it as we were shooting it. Um, we just started prepping the movie that was, you know, fresh out the gate as a first draft. This session is presented by the Weta Group of Companies. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.